Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee. All the best. I remember several years ago, one of my friends pointed out the fact that at church, women had to bring jackets in the middle of the summer because it was always so freezing in our church building. I had grown up my whole life with my teeth chattering in church buildings, but I had never noticed it. I'd never thought about it. And my friend said, well, yeah, of course, because men wear suits to church. They wear pants and long sleeve shirts and jackets and socks and shoes when they come to church. And the church leaders who are the ones who show up in the morning to like turn on the lights and check the thermostat are always men. And so they are the ones who set the thermostats. And without even thinking about it, of course, they're going to set the thermostats to the temperature that's comfortable for them. So they're not being mean. They're not being rude or intentionally like making women cold. (laughs) They just don't realize that half the people in the church are wearing dresses. And I thought of that conversation when I read the preface to the book that we're going to be discussing today. It's Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And I'm going to read just one excerpt from that introduction. She says that the gender data gap is composed of missing information or silences in all kinds of scenarios. She says, quote, these silences, these gaps have consequences. They impact women's lives every day. The impact can be relatively minor, shivering in offices set to a male temperature norm, for example, or struggling to reach a top shelf set at a male height norm. Irritating, certainly. Unjust, undoubtedly, but not life-threatening. Not like crashing in a car whose safety measures don't account for women's measurements. Not like having your heart attack go undiagnosed because your symptoms are deemed atypical. For these women, the consequences of living in a world built around male data can be deadly. End quote. And she goes on to say that this is not malicious or deliberate on the part of men, but it's an understandable blind spot. And this non-thinking about women, even if it isn't deliberate, has a serious impact just the same. And this MO has to change. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to welcome my reading partner to the program, Barbie Hada Harper. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Amy. It's great to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you here, Barbie. Okay, well, let's dive in to the subject of our conversation today, which is this book, Invisible Women. And first, we'll get to know the author of the book. So Caroline Criado Perez, she was born in Brazil. Her dad was Argentine and her mom was English, but they were living in Brazil when she was born. She was born in 1984. And the family had lived in several countries during her childhood, including Spain, Portugal, Taiwan, and the UK. And she also attended boarding school in the Netherlands. So she really has an international perspective. Criado Perez studied history at a university in London, but then she discontinued her studies. She loved opera, and for a time she wanted to become an opera singer, and she worked various jobs in order to pay for singing lessons. She then worked in yet another field, digital marketing, for some years and then studied for an English literature A-level 
and she gained a place to study English language and literature at Oxford University as a mature student. And she graduated from Oxford in 2012, and she became a feminist through studying language and gender in a book by Deborah Cameron, which discussed gender's relationship to pronouns. And she mentions this in her book, and I thought that was interesting too. She also studied gender studies at the London School of Economics. And some of her notable campaigns as she got involved in you know, social movements were getting a female historical figure on Bank of England banknotes, which is awesome. And then another campaign that she was in charge of was getting Twitter to introduce a report abuse button on tweets. And another really notable effort that she led was getting the first statue of a woman, which was Millicent Fawcett in Parliament Square in England. So she's a really impressive activist as well. Her first book was called Do It Like a Woman, and it was published in 2015. And then the book that we're discussing today is a number one Sunday Times best-selling book. It's, again, called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And it was published in March of 2019. So with that intro, let's dig into the book. And as always, we'll just take turns highlighting different parts of the book that stood out for us. And I am going to start with a little bit in the introduction. So for me, as a word person, one really interesting part was this. She says, quote, Anthropologist Sally Slocum pointed out that gender bias appeared not only in the ways in which the scanty data are interpreted, but in the very language used. The word man, she wrote, is used in such an ambiguous fashion that it is impossible to decide whether it refers to males or to the human species in general. And it continues, numerous studies in a variety of languages over the past 40 years have consistently found that what is called the generic masculine, using words like he in a gender neutral way, is not in fact read generically. It is read overwhelmingly as male. When the generic masculine is used, people are more likely to recall famous men than famous women, to estimate a profession as male dominated, to suggest male candidates for jobs and political appointments. Women are also less likely to apply and less likely to perform well in interviews for jobs that are advertised using the generic masculine. While the generic masculine only really clings on in the writings of pedants who still insist on using he to mean he or she, it has made something of a comeback in the informal usage of Americanisms such as dude and guys, and in the UK, lads, as supposedly gender neutral terms. End quote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I heard you say this, I thought to myself, oh, man. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there I was again. It's really yes. hard to get away from. It's like interwoven in our speech. It is. And it's so, yes, we say, oh, man, and oh, boy. And like, mm-hmm. if, if you, once you start hearing it, it's you everywhere. You can't hear it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I need to do a better job of that. Because as, I mean, this is what she's pointing out is that whether it's conscious or not, subconsciously, we are reinforcing this, like the man as the one, the real Mm -hmm. human is masculine. Those were the parts that I pulled out from the intro. Mm, Yeah. Okay, so the next chapter that we thought was really great is chapter two. And we both had some quotes that we wanted to share from this chapter. I'll start out 
And she begins this chapter. So the chapter title is called Gender Neutral with Urinals. And she begins the chapter with this so relatable scenario of being at a theater for a show, like a play or a musical or the symphony or something. And the line for the ladies room, right at intermission, like everyone can relate to this. It just goes out the door and wraps all the way around the foyer. Right. And there's no line for the men's room. So you're always tempted to just like run in and go in the men's room. So after reading just that, I was like, yeah, why have I, why do we all just live with that? Why does no one solve that problem? That's a problem that super inconveniences women. And I have never in my life thought, we need to solve this problem. I'm just like, oh, well, I guess I'll be late for the second act or whatever, because mm-hmm. there's, it's such a long line. Anyway, we just don't question those things. But these are problems that can be solved. So anyway, she, she says this, quote, on the face of it, it may seem fair and equitable to accord male and female public toilets the same amount of floor space. So she says that it would seem fair and equitable to accord male and female public toilets the same amount of floor space. And historically, this is the way it has been done. 50-50 division of floor space has even been formalized in plumbing codes. However, if a male toilet has both cubicles and urinals, the number of people who can relieve themselves at once is far higher per square foot of floor space in the male bathroom than in the female bathroom. Suddenly, equal floor space isn't so equal. She goes on to say, but even if male and female toilets had an equal number of stalls, the issue would not be resolved because women take up to two to three times as long as men to use the toilet. Okay, and pause the quote, because here I thought she was going to say because, you know, women have to take off their pants and sit down or whatever. But it's even more than that. She says, women make up the majority of the elderly and disabled two groups that tend to need more time in the toilet. Women are also more likely to be accompanied by children as well as disabled and older people. Then there's the 20 to 25% of women of childbearing age who may be on their period at any one time and therefore needing to change a tampon or a sanitary pad. Women may also in any case require more trips to the bathroom than men. Pregnancy significantly reduces bladder capacity as we know. (laughs) And women are eight times more likely to suffer from urinary tract infections than men, which again increases the frequency with which a toilet visit is needed, end quote. So that part really blew my mind. And also I loved that it was just like the most universal, practical situation that everybody could relate to and thought, and I did again, I just thought like, yeah, why, why are we not solving this? Anyway. So yeah, exactly. If if there were more women in those building planning meetings, there's no way that we would continue to have this problem. And again, it's not that men are doing this on purpose. It's just that most men never have to think about it or stand in those lines and wait to go in after, you know, intermission. Going on, I really enjoyed chapter four. It's called The Myth of Meritocracy. And um You know, she talks about how in certain enlightened arenas like tech, you know, modern arenas, I guess, and academia, it's a popular belief that individuals receive recognition based on their merit. And, you know, of course, that's how it should be. But she goes on to prove that this concept of meritocracy is sadly a myth. 
quote, in academia, for example, students and academics who are female are significantly less likely to receive funding, be granted meetings with professors, be offered mentoring, or even to get the job. But universities operate as if males and females are on a level playing field. Multiple studies have shown that when female-authored papers are rated under double-blind review, meaning they aren't gender-specified, they are accepted more often or rated higher. So there is a gendered publishing gap. When female academics are published, several studies have shown that women are systematically cited less than men, a gendered citations gap. Both of these gaps lead to a vicious cycle where fewer women progress in their careers and around again we go. Meanwhile, there's another study that showed that women in academia and many other workplaces are actually asked to do more undervalued work than their male colleagues, like taking notes, getting coffee, and doing the cleanup. They generally do it because they're penalized as being unlikable if they say no. This likability factor in turn affects their ability to publish. Another vicious cycle, putting women between a rock and a hard place. This lack of meritocracy in academia is a real problem. And as she says, you know, it really should concern all of us. It's not just about academia here. This is going to affect the quality of research in government policy, in medical practice, in occupational health legislation. This research honestly has a direct impact on all of our lives and our futures. So we need women to be represented here. Okay, um, another interesting part that I enjoyed. So I have an exercise for you, for everyone here. And you can be the guinea pig here, Amy. Tell me the first image that comes to your mind when you picture a genius. Einstein. Okay. And, you know, she says chances are it's a man. And so thank you for that great demonstration. (laughs) And, you know, it's okay because we all have these unconscious biases. For some reason, I pictured the inventor Thomas Edison. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Brilliance bias is in no small part a result of the data gap. Female geniuses have been written out of history. They've become invisible Mm -hmm. in history, which is such a loss. Mm -hmm. Going on, she talks about children and how children are taught brilliance bias from an early age. There's this draw a scientist meta-analysis where young children, probably around kindergarten age, are asked to draw roughly equal or asked to draw scientists and it turn as it turns out they draw about equal percentages of male and female scientists mm. averaged out a- across boys and girls but by the time these children are 7 or 8 male scientists significantly outnumber female scientists and by the time they're age 14 children are drawing four times as many male scientists as female scientists And this actually isn't backed by reality. In the UK, for example, there are more female scientists than male in genetics, in polymers, and in microbiology. Sheesh, crazy. (sighs) So the next chapter that we wanted to highlight is chapter seven. and, And I'll just dive in with a description of this scenario. She says, quote, Humans, by which I mean mainly women, have been cooking with three stone fires since the Neolithic era. These are exactly what they sound like, three stones on the ground on which to balance a pot, with fuel, wood, or whatever else you can gather that will burn, placed in the middle. 
In South Asia, 75% of families are still using biomass fuels, which is wood or other organic matter, for energy. In Bangladesh, the figure is as high as 90%. In sub-Saharan Africa, biomass fuels are the primary source of energy used for cooking for 753 million people. That's 80% of the population. The trouble with traditional stoves is that they give off extremely toxic fumes. A woman cooking on a traditional stove in an unventilated room is exposed to the equivalent of more than 100 cigarettes a day. Globally, they cause three times more deaths every year than malaria, which is 2.9 million. Women who cook on them are exposed to these fumes for three to seven hours a day, meaning that worldwide, Indoor air pollution is the single largest environmental risk factor for female mortality and the leading killer of children under the age of five. Indoor air pollution is also the eighth leading contributor to the overall global disease burden, causing respiratory and cardiovascular damage, as well as increased susceptibility to infectious illnesses such as tuberculosis and lung cancer. However, as is so often the case with health problems that mainly affect women, scientists admit that, quote, these adverse health effects have not been studied in an integrated and scientifically rigorous manner, end quote. I'm just so, like, it almost, like, knocks the air out of me, and partly because I had never even heard of that before. Um, yeah, so she goes on to tell how since the 1950s, development agencies have actually tried to introduce clean stoves, but these organizations are not doing proper data collection. Um, and oftentimes, as we've discussed before, it's not that hard and it's really kind of just like a tweak, but it just hasn't been happening correctly. She says, quote, they don't generally collect data on what user needs actually are. For example, drinking water, pumping, food processing, and fuel collection before starting on their development projects. And the result of this dearth of data is that to date, clean cook stoves have nearly all been rejected by users. A USAID funded report in Bangladesh repeatedly acknowledged that all five stoves increased cooking time and required more attending. This prevented women from multitasking as they would with a traditional stove and forced them to change the way they cooked, again increasing their workload. Nevertheless, the main and repeated recommendation of the report was to fix the women rather than the stoves. Ah, this bothers me. Mm -hmm. The women needed to be educated on how great the improved stoves were rather than the designers needing to be educated on how not to increase women's already 15-hour average workday. There is hope from India where the problem was addressed. Designers closed the gender data gap and first consulted with the women, then designed a cheap $1 mechanism that fit within their current stoves to increase efficiency. End quote. Uh, it's sometimes such a simple solution. And it just, they, these women, they just need to matter. They just need people to notice what they're going through. I wanted to share one more thing about this from the from this chapter because I did think this was one of the most important ones. She talks about in another initiative in Bangladesh that the the women expressed enthusiasm about the new stoves, but then when their husbands got home, 
they forbid their wives from spending their very limited money on the new cook stove. And so like they got, so these, you know, these international kind of like humanitarian aid people who came in, got the women all excited about the stove, but then didn't do the research, I guess, about like whether they would be able to afford them. And then a headline was run afterwards, you know, once they had introduced the stoves and then the women didn't use them or didn't buy them or whatever, the headline said, quote, despite efforts for change, Bangladeshi women prefer to use pollution causing cook stoves. <laughs> and I was just that I thought that was infuriating. Okay. Another chapter that we wanted to highlight is called A Sea of Dudes. <laughs> it's chapter nine. Okay. And um, we, I think we each had a couple of things that we wanted to share from this chapter. First, uh, it talked about a woman gamer and author who was playing a virtual reality game for the first time in multiplayer mode, right? So you have somebody else, like another actual human being who has an avatar in the game with you. And she was sexually assaulted virtually by a player <laughs> named Big Bro 442 and VR is designed to feel real so it felt real to her and she wrote about it on her blog and I wanted to share this because again this is a, this is another example of something positive because the makers of the game had a really great response Quote, they immediately redesigned their personal bubble setting in which other players' hands disappear if they come close to your face to cover the entire body and so made such groping impossible. But as they themselves noted, while they had thought of the possibility of some silly person trying to block your view with their hands and ruining the game, they hadn't thought of extending the fading function to the rest of the body. How, they asked, could we have overlooked something so obvious? End quote. So I just think just, again, it's a data gap. It's a blind spot where women probably would have thought like, uh, what are you going to do about that personal bubble? And that, that, you know, traumatizing experience for that woman could have been avoided in the first place. Right, right. Okay, chapter 10 talks about car crashes. It's a chapter entitled The Drugs Don't Work, and so it goes into a lot more. But one subject that affects us all is this concept of car safety. It says, quote, when a woman is involved in a car crash, she is 47% more likely to be moderately injured, even when researchers control for factors like height, weight, seatbelt usage, and crash intensity. She is also 17% more likely to die. And it's all to do with how the car is designed and for whom. Women tend to sit further forward than men when driving. This is because we are on average shorter. Our legs need to be closer to reach the pedals and we need to sit more upright to see clearly over the dashboard. This is not, however, the standard seating position. Women are out of position drivers and our willful deviation from the norm means that we are at greater risk of internal injury on frontal collisions. The angle of our knees and our hips as our shorter legs reach for the pedals also makes our legs more vulnerable. Essentially, we're doing it all wrong. <laughs> Women are also at higher risk in rear end collisions. Women have less muscle on our necks and upper torso than men which makes us more vulnerable to whiplash by up to three times. And car design has amplified this vulnerability. 
Swedish research has shown that modern seats are too firm to protect women against whiplash injuries. The seats throw women forward faster than men because the back of the seat doesn't give way for women's, on average, lighter bodies. The reason this has been allowed to happen is very simple. Cars have been designed using car crash test dummies based on the average male. End quote. Mm. You're just shaking your head, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, isn't this kind of like one of those duh moments where you're like, why? Why aren't, why aren't we doing better by now? It's hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she says, quote, crash test dummies were first introduced in the 1950s, and for decades they were based around the 50th percentile male. In the early 1980s, researchers argued for the inclusion of a 50th percentile female in regulatory tests, but this advice was ignored. It wasn't until 2011 that the U.S. started using a female crash test dummy Although just how female these dummies are is still questionable. There is one EU regulatory test that requires what is called a fifth percentile female dummy, which is meant to represent the female population. Only 5% of women will be shorter than this dummy. But there are a number of data gaps. For a start, this dummy is only tested in the passenger seat, Isn't that a crazy kind of metaphor? Yeah. So we have no data at all for how a female driver would be affected. What? I know. (laughs) And secondly, this female dummy is not really female. It is just a scaled down male dummy. And women are not scaled down men. We have different muscle mass distribution. We have lower bone density. There are sex differences in vertebrae spacing. Even our body sway is different. And these differences are all crucial when it comes to injury rates in car crashes, end quote. Mm. This was absolutely absurd to me. Mm -hmm. I've been in a scary car accident before. And when our car hydroplaned and rolled on a Utah highway in the middle of a storm, you know, at that moment, all the safety features in your car that you took for granted suddenly mean everything to you. And that's what you're relying on. And so... I'm just blown away that car crash regulations are still based on such narrow data. It was really upsetting to read this section. It just that that kind of negligence is just is really upsetting. It needs to be changed. It needs to be fixed. Right. Um, the next chapter we wanted to highlight is similar. It's a completely different aspect of life, but equally upsetting for me. It's chapter eleven, and. It talks about heart health. She says, quote, If I were to ask you to picture someone in the throes of a heart attack, you most likely would think of a man in his late middle age, possibly overweight, clutching at his heart in agony. That's certainly what a Google image search offers up. You're unlikely to think of a woman. Heart disease is a male thing. But a recent analysis of data from 22 million people from North America, Europe, Asia, and Australasia found that women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are 25% more likely to suffer a heart attack than men in the same income bracket. Wow. Since 1989, cardiovascular disease has been the leading cause of death in U.S. women, and following a heart attack women are more likely to die than men. 
So then you read, you know, reading that or hearing that you think, okay, why? Like, what is happening? Why mm -hmm. would a woman, why do women get more heart attacks? And if a woman and a man get a heart attack, why does the woman die more often? She goes on to explain, perhaps the greatest contributor to the numbers of women dying following a heart attack is that their heart attacks are simply being missed by their doctors. Research from the UK has found that women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed following a heart attack, rising to almost 60% for some types of heart attack. This is partly because women don't have the Hollywood heart attack, which is the chest and left arm pains. Women, particularly young women, may in fact present without any chest pain at all, but rather with stomach pain, breathlessness, nausea, and fatigue. These symptoms are often referred to as, quote-unquote, atypical. So just one more thing from this chapter about heart attack. She says, a heart attack is traditionally diagnosed with an angiogram, which will show where there are obstructed arteries. But women often don't have obstructed arteries, meaning the scan won't show any abnormalities. Women with normal angiograms have gone on to suffer a heart attack or stroke shortly after being discharged from hospital. So yeah, it sounds like a lot more research needs to be done to save women's lives. Mm, definitely. And that brings us to the end of the book. And, and honestly, like there was so much that we didn't even have a mm. chance to talk about on the episode. It's a really long book, but I thought it was one of the most readable and urgently important books that we've read on the podcast. I I thought it was really amazing. So thank you again, Barbie, so much for being here. I learned so much from you and, and this I thought was just a fantastic book and a great conversation. So thanks. Oh thank you, Amy. Mm -hmm.